Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Stick a finger in Revelation chapter 6 and hang on for a minute. And I want to do something that I haven't probably done since February, which is our children's uh, timeline. I, I miss bringing the children up here on the platform. We're going to get to do that again, hopefully, before too much longer. But boys and girls, I'm going to need your help because I'm a little rusty on the timeline. But we need this timeline today to help us better understand what we're going to preach about from Revelation chapter 6. All right, boys and girls, you ready? Yes. Big boys and girls, are you ready? All right, here we go. In the beginning, God created how many people? Two. What were their names? Adam and Eve. Did they obey God or disobey? They disobeyed God. What does the Bible call that? Sin. And even though they sinned, God stepped into the garden and He made them a promise. He promised to send a Savior, but sin just got worse. So God sent a flood. He destroyed the whole world except one man by the name of Noah and his entire family. The world begins to repopulate and they built the Tower of Babel, but God confused their languages. That was the beginning of the nations of the earth. And out of all those people, God chose one man to form a new nation. His name is Abraham. He promised Abraham three things, lots of children, lots of land, and a blessing through him to the nations of the earth. And Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob had a son by the name of Joseph. Joseph ends up living in Egypt. The Pharaoh turns all of God's people into slaves. God raised up a man to bring them out of slavery. His name is Moses. Did Moses take them into the promised land? No. His protege Joshua takes them into the promised land. But even when they get into the promised land, their hearts are still wicked. They go through a series or a cycle of judges and the people cried out, we don't want any more judges. We want a king. So they got King Saul. They got King David. They got King Solomon. And then the kingdom split. And what happened to the northern kingdom? The Assyrians totally destroyed them. What happened to the southern kingdom? They went into captivity. Where? Babylon. For how many years? 70 years. One of the famous people who went into that captivity in Babylon ended up in a lion's den, by the way. Daniel. If you got your Bible handy, go to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 9 before we get to Revelation chapter 6. They were in captivity those 70 years. That's what Jeremiah the prophet had foretold, that it would be 70 years. And those 70 years ended, they came back to Jerusalem, rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the temple. Then for 400 plus years, God got really, really silent until he spoke to a young girl by the name of Mary. Mary, you're going to have a baby, and her, that baby's name is Jesus, and Jesus lived a what kind of life? perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave and he ascended into, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to the earth. That's the beginning of the church. That's us. That's where we come into the story. At any moment, Jesus is coming back. We're going to get to that, but let's go back to that Babylonian captivity that's going on in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's a pretty old guy now. He's been in this captivity for quite a while, and on this day, he's reading out of the scriptures from an old friend of his by the name of Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah chapter 25 where he reads that God had told Jeremiah in a prophecy that this captivity was going to last for 70 years. Daniel starts counting on his fingers and toes and gets really excited because he realizes we are pretty close to the end of this captivity and God always keeps his word. 
And so Daniel begins to pray to the Lord. He begins to praise the Lord. He begins to worship the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, heaven dispatches an angel by the name of Gabriel. Gabriel comes to Daniel. Imagine that. He comes to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, and he has a message from heaven to Daniel. We pick it up in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed. And most biblical scholars agree that that word weeks there represents a set of seven years. It's not seven days, but seven years. And Gabriel says here to Daniel, 70 weeks or 70 times seven years has been decreed. How many is 70 years times seven? 490 years. So 490 years are decreed about your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jewish people. And about your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Right? So 490 years. God has a 490 year plan that has been decreed for the Jewish people and for Jerusalem. What is the plan? To bring the rebellion to an end. To put a stop to sin. To atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah received the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem on March the 16th, 445 B.C. Daniel says when that, or Gabriel says to Daniel, when that decree is issued until an anointed one, a.k.a. the Messiah, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven times seven is how many? Forty-nine years. Very good. And seven times sixty-two is what? Four hundred thirty-four. <laughs> I wrote it down ahead of time. And the reason that I think Gabriel says it that way is forty-nine years. Seven times seven is how long it's going to take to rebuild the temple. And the other four hundred and thirty-four years is how long they're going to wait for Jesus, the Messiah, to appear. So the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks or 49 years and 62 weeks, 434 years. And when you add the math up, some people have calculated this. Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, April 6, AD 32, which is 173,880 days after Nehemiah was given the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, exactly 483 years. Now watch. It will, be, it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat. I know some of you feel like, whoa, I don't know what happened. We're doing like lots of math here today. Last week we were in heaven with the Lord and it was all our hearts were in. Like today you're making my brain hurt. I'm with you. I answered the call to pastoral ministry when I looked at the course requirements and there was no math required. I, I, I hear you, Lord. Here I am. Send me. All right. So we got to put our heads on today. All right. Got to put your thinking cap on. After, verse 26, after those 62 weeks... The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. That's what happened. We had the seven weeks. We had the 62 weeks. Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. He presents himself as Messiah. And on Friday, they reject him as their Messiah. And he's cut off. And the Bible says he will have nothing. And he died on the cross with absolutely nothing. Now, wait a minute. We're missing. How many years did Gabriel decree that God had a plan for his people? Seven times 70, 490. We're missing seven years. We're missing seven years. 
The text goes on and says, the people of the coming ruler. That's the Gentiles. The coming ruler, I believe, is who we would call the Antichrist. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and sanctuary. And the Gentiles did destroy the city in 70 A.D. in the Roman Empire. The Romans did that. And when the Antichrist is revealed, he's going to kind of reunify the Roman Empire or a one-world government. And then Gabriel goes on and says, The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. That's the day that we're living in right now. Desolations are decreed. He, that is the coming ruler or the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant, verse 27, with many for one week. There's our missing week, right? There's our missing seven years that we were missing here as we did our math. The Antichrist will make a firm covenant with many for one week. He'll act like a man of peace. He's going to make a covenant, but he's going to break that covenant, break that treaty halfway through it. Say, how do you know that? Because that's what it says next. But in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. In other words, the Antichrist thinks he's going to be the destroyer, but as it turns out, when it's all said and done, he's the one that will be destroyed. Now listen, you might say that when Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God hit the pause button on his 490-year plan. And he paused it with seven years left in his plan. Today we come to Revelation chapter 6, which begins a period of time known as the tribulation. This is when God hits the unpause button. And that final seven years begins again in these seven years of tribulation. This is when God turns His attention back to dealing with His people, Israel, once again. Now listen, when we get to Revelation chapter 6, opinions vary, interpretations vary. Even within this room, some of us have different ways that we approach this and understand this and have interpreted this, okay? And I understand that, and I recognize that. And this is not one of those issues that we break fellowship over, all right? This, this is of secondary importance. First importance is Christ and Him crucified, the only way to be reconciled to God. This is not of first importance. So we can have some disagreements when it comes to this and still be united in Christ. And I thought about how would I approach this. And I thought, well, I could try to present every, every view and try to give them all a fair shake. Time's just not going to allow. There's just too many of those, and I'm already squishing 50 minutes of sermon into 30 minutes every week, so that's not going to work. I thought about just kind of staying neutral and doing a, a flyover and kind of make it sort of a devotional sort of approach, but I don't think that's really what we're looking for, especially in the days that we're living in. We're kind of looking for some, uh, hey, what is going on in this crazy world? So I kind of feel like we, we need to kind of dive in here a little bit. And so I, I've decided that the best way for me to do this is for me to share God's Word with you as I understand it through my interpretation of it. That's not always going to match up with your interpretation. Understand that, okay? I'm not going to get it perfect. And neither are you. The book is perfect, but I don't believe there's ever going to be a human being whose interpretation of the book is perfect. So, can we just all agree 
that we're going to step into this with a whole lot of humility, all right? And a whole lot of awe and wonder at how big our God is. Now, let me start with this. What is the purpose of these seven years? Well, before I tell you the purpose of these seven years, let me tell you this. I do not believe that the church will be present on this earth during these seven years. I believe that these seven years of tribulation are going to begin after Jesus comes in the air in what we call the rapture and catches his church out of this world and takes us home to be with him. I believe that for a number of reasons, too many reasons to go into today. But I will say this, Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is all about the church, right? We saw that. But in Revelation 4, God says to John, come up here and I'll show you the things that are to take place. From there, through Revelation chapter 19, you don't find the church. That's, that's the period of tribulation. Now, I think that the blood-bought saints of God, if they were on this earth during all the cataclysmic events that are happening between Revelation 4 and 19, I would think that we would at least get a mention. But we don't even get a mention. The Bible says that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. I don't know about you, but when we've been broken into, they didn't make an appointment. They were pretty sneaky about it. When all this stuff with the quarantine happened and we were all locked down in the world, the whole world, didn't it? The whole world just kind of stopped. I'd never in my life seen the whole world just suddenly bow down at the same time to the same thing globally like it did. So my creative mind got to thinking, all right, God, what are you doing in the middle of all this? And I, this isn't Bible. This was just my mind thinking. I thought, whoa, you know what? This would be the time. This would be the time while we're all locked down and away from each other. Maybe, maybe somebody sets off one of these EMPs or a bunch of EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, and the whole electrical grid goes out. Cars can't run. People are stalled out everywhere. There's no electricity. There's no internet. Your phones aren't working. Everything's shut down, and the world loses its ever-loving minds. And think about that. Would that not be the time that Jesus could just sneak his church out of this world? Think about that. Weeks would go by before you would even know what was going just 100 miles away from your home. We know what's happening on the other side of the world like that right now. But if something like that happened, we're suddenly cut off. And I thought about that. And the anarchy that would ensue and the whole world would fall apart if it went down like that. And then I thought... And when the grid comes back up, maybe just maybe the world hears this new voice that begins to unify the people and bring order and peace into the midst of the chaos. Listen, I don't know when Jesus is coming back exactly. I just know he is. I don't know how he's going to do everything that he's going to do, but I've got my ideas probably like you also have your ideas as well. I will say this. The book of Revelation seems a whole lot closer to me today than it has ever seemed before in my life. I think you guys are feeling that too. And I don't know that that's just because of the stuff going on around us or because of the Holy Spirit in us or some combination of the two. But I think we have a sense that God is up to something in this day that we are living in. And I believe when he comes and he takes the church out of the world, that's going to begin these seven years of tribulation. The tribulation is not about God's plan for the church. It's about God's plan for Israel. 
I take you back to Daniel 9. Look at it again, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. Who's Daniel's people? Israel, the Jewish people, and your holy city. These 490 years are all about Israel. 483 of them happened, and the Messiah was presented to them. After the last seven happened, the Messiah will be presented again. He'll come again to earth for the second time. After they rejected Him as Messiah... After the 483 years, the mission of taking the gospel to the whole world was given to us Gentiles. That's the mystery the Bible calls the church. But God's plan to use this church in the world is soon coming to an end. After 2,000 years, in any moment, it'll be complete and He'll take us to heaven to be with Him. And then He's going to turn His attention to Israel for those final seven years of the 490 years that have been decreed. And listen, this will help you, okay? That's what Revelation 6 through 19 is all about. Revelation 6 through 19, which is the mass majority of the book of Revelation, this difficult and hard and challenging and intimidating book. Understand this. Revelation 6 through 19 is all about those seven years called the tribulation. It's about God turning His attention to Israel. It's also about God judging the world in their sin and disbelief. And when those seven years are finished, God's going to throw Satan into the pit for a thousand years. During those thousand years, I believe Jesus is going to rule and reign on planet Earth from Jerusalem for those thousand years. When those thousand years are complete, Satan will be released. There's going to be one last great battle called Armageddon, but it really won't be much of a battle. It's really going to be an execution. And Satan and evil will be done away with once and for all, and it will be then that Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth where we are going to live with Him forever. Now, I don't know if you paid attention, but in the first 15 minutes today, we went from Adam and Eve to new heaven and new earth. We just tied it all together. Now understand this, as we get to Revelation chapter 6 today, Revelation 6 through 19 is the tribulation. Revelation 6 and 7 is the preview of the tribulation. Okay? Understand that. It's an overview. If you think that it's beginning a chronological account, 6, 7, 8, 9, you're going to get confused. 6 and 7 are the preview for what's coming throughout the seven years of tribulation. Now, by way of review, when we left Revelation chapter 5 last week, Jesus was holding in His hand what? A scroll, sealed with how many seals? Seven. That's right. Now today in Revelation chapter 6, Jesus begins to break those seals one at a time and open the scroll. And these seven seals encompass the entire period of tribulation that will end with the return of Christ on the earth. Don't, don't confuse rapture and return of Christ. Don't, re, don't confuse rapture and second coming. In the rapture, Jesus, that's not His second coming. He doesn't come to earth in the rapture. He comes in the air. His second coming, when He comes to earth for the second time, is at the end of the seven years tribulation when He sets up His throne in Jerusalem for those thousand years. Just want to make sure that we understand what I'm talking about there. Now, the first four seals that he's going to break today in Revelation chapter 6 reveal what have come to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen 
And buddy, did I struggle to figure out how to engage kids in the sermon today. I'm telling you, it's been tough. Now, I'm going to ask you to do this. Don't think of, this is the way I come to this. I don't think of the riders on these four horses as actual people. They are symbols, I believe. Symbols of a force that Jesus is unleashing in judgment upon the earth during these seven years. I believe that the first four seals that we'll look at today happen in the first half of the tribulation. The fifth seal that he breaks kind of bridges the first half of the tribulation to the second half of the tribulation. And the sixth and seventh seal that he breaks happen toward the end of the tribulation, also known as the Great Tribulation. What's going to happen in these seven years? It's going to go from bad to worse. Jesus said like a, a woman having a baby, right? When a woman is having a baby, the closer you get to delivering that baby, the pain gets worse and the frequency with which you experience that pain is faster. And this is how the tribulation goes. The deeper you go into it, the worse the judgments become and the more rapid they fall from heaven onto earth. Now, with that in view... Let's look at Revelation 6 now in the first four seals. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! Remember the four living creatures around the throne that we saw last week? That, that live, one of them says with a voice like thunder, Come! And John says, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. In the Bible, white horses, kind of like even in our culture, they're associated with victory. They're associated with conquering, with conquest, with majesty, and with power. And some say this white horse, the rider on this white horse, is Jesus. I don't think this is Jesus. Jesus will come riding in on a white horse, but not until Revelation 19. The rider on this white horse is wearing a crown called a Stephanos, but when Jesus comes, he's wearing diademos, many crowns. This rider on this horse has a bow. When Jesus comes, he's coming with a sword. Now, some say the rider on this horse is the Antichrist imitating Jesus. I don't think this is the Antichrist on this horse. Remember, I think these four riders are symbolic of a force or a power that Jesus is unleashing on this earth. I think what this horse is representing is a time of worldwide unity and peace. And the Antichrist is going to be a big part of that. He's going to be a prominent figure and a key figure in promoting this worldwide global unity and peace. But this peace is a false peace. It's deceptive. People are going to be lulled into a false sense of security, a false sense of hope. It's a satanic trap, is what it is. The Antichrist will convince the world that he will be able to provide for them what they have long been hoping for. Look at our world right now, right? Pe people want peace. People want Unity, they're screaming for it, they're clamoring for it, trying to figure out how to attain it. And the Antichrist is going to convince 
the world that he can do this. He's going to bring them together. He's going to make a treaty, in particular with Israel. Gabriel told Daniel this 2,600 years ago in Daniel chapter 9. And so I think this white horse represents a false peace promoted by a global leader known as the Antichrist. All right, everybody with me so far? Anybody have any questions? Just kidding. I am not taking questions. <laughs> Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. If you call the white horse bogus peace, you can call the red horse brutal war. Brutal war. That brief global sense of we are the world. You remember when I was a kid, that was a thing? We are the world, right? We are the children. You're going to have that for a minute during those seven years. But when this second seal is broken, that's gone. Violence breaks out. Wars break out. Nation against nations. Civil wars within nations. Violence and murder among people. This is where, when the second seal is broken, revelation gets ugly. And it stays ugly through chapter 19. This time of war is going to be far worse than anything the world has ever seen before. When he opened, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart for a wheat a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. The force that's riding on this third horse, this black horse, is what I believe is global famine. Global famine. This will be the most devastating famine that the world's ever seen. Listen, toilet paper is not going to be your concern when this third seal is broken. There's not going to be food. The scales in the hand of this rider point us to the fact that food is going to be rationed in this famine. Verse 6 says, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. A quart of wheat might feed a guy like me. It might, it might be enough to sustain me through the day. A denarius is what the common worker would make in a day's time. So I could work all day, maybe to get enough wheat to sustain myself. The problem, if this were me, is I got five other mouths to feed. So I could take my denarius, and instead of getting a quart of wheat, I could get three quarts of barley. Barley is not nearly as nu nutritional as wheat is. It's typically what you would give animals to eat. I could work all day, and I could put three quarts of barley, dog food, on the table. For my family. So if you live through all the wars and the violence from the second seal being broken, now there's no economy left and you're likely to die of starvation. And let me just remind you, this is early on in the tribulation. This is early in the birth pain. The, the really bad stuff hasn't even started yet. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Death gets the body, 
Hades gets the soul. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Violence and famine have already removed in seals 2 and 3 a considerable amount of the world's population. And now with the breaking of this fourth seal, a fourth of the world's remaining population is destroyed by violence, by famine, by pestilence, maybe an, a pandemic of sorts, and by wild beasts of the earth. It seems that God turns the entire animal kingdom against the human race. Nothing like these seals has ever, ever happened before on the earth. And yet, this, this is just the beginning. Just the beginning of the judgment of God that's going to be poured out during this time. Sinners are going to know that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And as bad as that's going to be for them, at that point, it's going to get so much worse. And as bad as it's going to get for them during the final days of the tribulation, that's nothing compared to what they're going to experience in hell forever. Now let me close with three quick takeaway thoughts. Number one is this. Jesus is in control of all things. Some of you may be thinking, Pastor, through this whole thing, I've heard you say this a million times. How many more times are you going to tell us this? Until you believe it. Jesus is in control of this day. Jesus is in control of those seven years. Go back and read the text again. It was given to the rider of this horse. It was permitted to this one. It was given to this one. Who's doing that? Who's given the permission? Jesus is. He's in control of all of this. He's unleashing these forces on the earth. So listen up. If you're in Christ today, here's the good news for you. The judgment of God against your sin has already been poured out. There's none left to be poured out on you because it has already been poured out on Jesus at the cross for you. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a child of God, the tribulation is not a thing for you to worry about, not at least for yourself. Nothing that you should be afraid of. Because Christ has taken all of God's wrath against my sin, whom the Son has set free, is free. Indeed, Jesus is in control of all things. I want you to know that today. Second thought I want to leave you with. Jesus will save anyone. He will save anyone who calls on him in repentance and faith. He died for rioters. He died for Derek Chauvin. He died on the cross for George Floyd. He died for blacks and whites and browns. He died on the cross for members of Antifa. He died for Bill de Blasio. He died for President Donald Trump. He died for Saul of Tarsus. He died for you and he died for me. And he will save anybody in this world that will turn to him in repentance and faith. Jesus is saving people today. Grace Life's getting a front row seat at that, praise the Lord. Seeing more people follow him in this window of time in baptism. 
We can praise Him for that. People are being saved now. People are going to be saved even in those days. But you don't want to wait till those days. Which brings me to my third and final thought. Today is the day of salvation. Today. There may not be a tomorrow. At least not the one like you thought was coming. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ with your life, if you're watching online today, I pray that today you would turn in repentance and faith and surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we bow our hearts before you. We are so thankful for our salvation in Jesus. We pray for those who today need to be saved, God, that you would call them to yourself, that they might escape your coming wrath and judgment against sin by trusting that Christ has already taken it for them at the cross. Hey, with heads bowed and with eyes closed, church, I just want to ask you to do something for me today. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing like we always do. And if you're like me, you've been in church since nine months before you were born. This is where it's really easy to kind of get into a routine and get into a rut and quit paying attention. Sermon's over. We're getting out of here on time. Got to get out of here, go to the next thing. I need you to do me this one favor. I'm asking you to pay attention to the words of the song that we're about to sing. Pay close attention and I want you to think about how the plan of God is unstoppable. 2,600 years ago, he revealed part of it to Daniel. It's unstoppable. There's nothing going on right now in this world that is changing the plan of God. But I want you to think in particular of God's unstoppable plan to rescue you from your sin. He loved you and desired to make you his own. And nothing would keep him from doing that. His plan is unstoppable. As we sing this song, I want you to follow the story of the plan of God's rescue for you. Pay attention. Listen to the words. Sing the words. Engage your mind. Engage your heart. Let's truly worship the Lord, Grace Life, in this moment.